Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Hi, and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by the wonderful Thea Baker. Thea is a counsellor and psychotherapist. She has a wonderful clinic in Camberwell called Thea Baker Wellbeing. And we actually studied Gabor Mate's Compassionate Inquiry year long for professionals. It was a couple of years ago now, wasn't it? It was great. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so thank you so much for being on this show today. I just was, I've been dying to get you on for a while. I follow you on Instagram and I just love all the little, every little post that you put up. It's like a, a warm hug <laughs> and I love it. Bless you. How are you, Thea? How are you going today? Yeah, really good, actually. Yeah, good. We had actual sunshine yesterday down here in Melbourne. Just too hot. It was lovely. That's a rarity, isn't it, sometimes? It's a rarity. You've got to take it while it's there. I know you're very busy at the moment, so I'm really appreciative of your time. You're currently studying a PhD on how physical activity, specifically boxing, can help for women who have experienced gender-based violence. Oh, my God. Sounds like quite a hefty subject. <laughs> There's a whole big, long backstory as to why specifically boxing, but I used to work in the health and fitness industry when I first moved over to Australia, which is 14 years ago or so now. And I had a previous career in HR before I moved over here. Then I was doing the full-time mum thing. Then I moved over to Australia with two little kids. And I was really kind of like psychologically lost. I was a bit like, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I am. I don't know how to be here and to kind of reinvent myself and start again. And I kind of found my way back through moving my own body and for me that was swimming I was a swimmer as a kid and I swam competitively as a child back in the UK not good compared to Australian swimmers but I had just before we moved over just gotten back in the pool and I kind of convinced myself or com committed to joining a, a master swimming team when I moved over and that was a great way of making friends and you know getting my fitness back and but also just I don't know, there's something quite meditative for me, face down in a pool. That was a long distance freestyler. And that was just my way of like getting back into my body, getting back into a sense of self who I was. And then I actually got really kind of good at it. And I it's sort of accidentally, like I didn't realize that I was okay as a swimmer, like pretty good as a swimmer for my age and what have you. And I'd been here maybe three months and I was asked if I wanted to compete at nationals, which would have been like the following year. And then um opted to not go swim training one morning and went for a run instead fell and broke my foot 
didn't get to go to nationals and spent my first summer in Australia in a plaster cast, which was a shock to the system on so many levels. But I started like training myself out on the deck. I made my uh, husband at the time take me to Rebel Sport, which was like a whole new shop for me because that doesn't exist in the UK. Loaded me up with loads of training equipment and I lit with this massive plaster cast up to my knee, trained all summer long out on the deck. And I was lying there one day and I was like, oh, if I could do this for me, maybe I could help other women coming out of their own postpartum journey. Maybe I could do that too. And so that's how I kind of like, I retrained, I accidentally ended up in the health and fitness industry. Always felt like a bit of a fraud, like it really wasn't my thing, but it was brilliant for a while. But in amongst all of that, I spent so much time working with physical bodies, women's physical bodies that had not responded the way that they had anticipated after they'd had children. Some of these women were like very postpartum, like they had adult children. They had pelvic organ prolapse. They had pelvic floor dysfunction. They didn't feel like working in a, in a gym again was safe for them. And so I ended up with this like ragtag bunch of people that just had all these really interesting stories, both in their physical experiences, but also psychologically. And a lot of them had had quite psychologically traumatic childbirths and kind of ended up in this therapeutic space without feeling adequately qualified. So then I went back, uh, did a master's in counseling and psychotherapy, really shifted my focus into mental health specifically. And in amongst that time it's going to sound like i've got this really chaotic backstory which i kind of do but you know you own your story um <laughs> so my i divorced my kid's dad in amongst all of this i'd repartnered remarried he died he was a swimmer he died in an ocean swim very suddenly almost like a week before our first wedding anniversary so i'd had this event-based trauma in my life and i was really curious about that i was really curious about how that intersected with my early attachment trauma, how all of these things, and that's, that was just my like curiosity. Plus I was working with these physical bodies that had experienced physical trauma and psychological trauma, the person that was in those bodies. And so my interest really shifted to, to a trauma focus, hence Gabor and all of, all of that good stuff. But I've always had in the back of my head, bringing a PhD together where I could explore a what we call a moderate vigorous form of physical activity so not something like yoga where there's been some really great research already for women who have experienced gender-based violence or intimate partner violence but what about those more vigorous sports and i used boxing quite a lot with my women that i worked with and it had it had really interesting effects so this phd has been a long time coming but finally i'm a third of the way through Wow. Two more wow. years to go. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's yeah. so huge, isn't it? Well done. And it sounds really fascinating. What do you think about, I mean, physical movement? I mean, I talk so much on this podcast about the emotional stuff and supporting your nervous system, things like that. But exercise is a huge component that I get scared to talk about sometimes because I don't want people to feel like, oh no, you know, that's just another thing I've got to do. But it, it has been such an integral part of, yeah, I guess my own evolution and my recovery and, and just working on myself and keeping myself sane. Like it's just a kind of, I just have to every day do something. This morning I went for a big bike ride because I've got loads of calls on. I know that today I have to support myself and move my body a lot in a fairly kind of physical way. Sometimes I run and sometimes I'm just walking slowly on the beach, but I do find that kind of, I need to do something a little bit more vigorous to kind of, I don't know what it is. Tell me, what is that? Why does it feel so good? I know it gives you dopamine and endorphins, but tell me a bit more about it from your perspective. Well, that's really interesting because a couple of years ago when we were doing the CI training, actually, I was doing some research into, I guess, what are the, the mediators? So the pathway that operates between physical activity and at that point my research was in depressive symptoms right so depression and what we know is that physical activity has a positive effect on depression and other mental health right like anxiety ptsd those sorts of things but we don't actually really know how it does that that pathway that mediating pathway so you just said endorphins that's like the thing that everybody says it makes you feel good right it's the feel good hormone but actually underneath all of that those neurobiological pathways are probably less part of the story than some of our psychosocial elements like self-efficacy 
like the enjoyment of physical activity. So what we actually know, so the research that I was doing a couple of years ago was around that mechanism. And what I found was that in this particular cohort of women from socioeconomically disadvantaged areas, oh my God, the title of this paper is like three lines long, which I'm not going to repeat. But anyway, uh, in this particular cohort, the enjoyment of physical activity was critical as was self-efficacy, as was something called behavioral intention. So this idea that when you commit to doing something, when you follow through on it, there is a positive pathway. And they were actually the themes in the set of mediators that we looked at. We looked at things like screen time. We looked at nutritional diets. We looked at fruit and veg actually specifically and a whole bunch of other psychosocial factors and things like social connection. So we thought that um, probably that would play a really significant part. So if you were doing exercise with other people, that might be a mediating pathway, but actually that didn't give us any significant results. But self-efficacy, the enjoyment, and yeah, these behavioral intentions did show some significant outcomes. What we, we really posited from the end of that paper was that ultimately no one size fits all, right? Which I think we try and really stress in the health and fitness industry, that everybody needs to find the thing that lights them up like i said at the beginning swimming's always been my thing mm. and i know that until my husband died which made swimming a little bit less fun but that was always my go-to form of movement now i i've done yoga this morning and i'll go for a walk this afternoon and it's changed as my body's changed as my life stage has changed one last thing you said why different things you know why is it when sometimes it needs to be that you need to go for a hard bike ride or you need to go for a run or whatever it is mm. I went up to Gwingana up in Queensland after my husband had died and after I'd kind of stopped the kind of crying where I couldn't be left alone. So it was about three months after he'd gone. Um, I spent three or four nights up there. At, I went up by myself, but there were it was a women's weekend thinking that my body was in like some kind of like deep stress state because I was sleeping on the couch still. I couldn't sleep in my bed. I was barely eating and what I was eating was just like random. I was like, I think I was existing on like salmon and walnuts and eggs. And there was one other thing. It was just this random oh, avocado, right? Which is like in and of itself, probably some really great grounding food, but I wasn't eating like a whole good range of things. And I was like, my cortisol is bound to be completely shot. I probably just need to just chill out and do some lying down yoga and not much else. And if you've ever been to Guingana or somewhere like that, they don't tell you, here's your whole day. Let's plan it this morning. You can plan your whole day and you can see your whole itinerary. They tell you piece by piece, your three options. <laughs> so first thing in the morning, you have three options. You can do the more low key movement option, the more energetic physical activity option, or you can do the more creative thing that would be a bit random each time. And I said, well, I don't know which one I want to do because I don't know what else is coming for the other two parts of the day. And they said, that's not the point. What does your body need right now? Ooh. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like being present, right? I don't like sitting and feeling what my body wanted, but okay, I will do that. <laughs> like I will do as I'm told, right? Every single time I opted for the hard physical activity thing. And I'm like, but this isn't what I thought like I was supposed to be doing here. And the woman turned to me and she said, Thea, mm. sometimes you can't om out the kind of movement you need. And I was like, oh, genius. Sometimes it's not about oming it out. Sometimes you've just got to move it out. Oh. And I was like, there you go. Yeah. I went to spin <laughs> class. I hate spin. I hate spin. But I was spinning my little legs off and it vomited. But that's what my body like needed. It needed to move it out. That was my first like experience of of what I'm now getting to figure out in terms of research I guess yeah oh my god I love this so much so what does your body need right now and it's so true I think I'm yeah the same like sort of tuning in just this morning it was like yeah I'm gonna get on my bike and it feels good and it does feel good I feel strong my legs feel strong I know that I'm working on my legs and my butt and all those muscles that will help support me but it's so true. Our body is constantly giving us feedback. I actually did a post on it yesterday, funnily enough, about your body is <laughs> always giving you signals. And the more we can tune in, the better choices it will make for ourselves. But often we're not listening and perhaps we're not doing exactly what it is that we need. So what does your body need right now? Such a great question. How does someone who's listening, who's never heard this kind of 
thing before mm. and thinking, what the fuck? Like, how am I, how? <laughs> how does one tune into their body from your perspective? Yeah, well, most of the time and they hate it when I ask them this question because they know they know that they're going to get this from me right? every time. Like if once you've worked with me a few times, they know that it's always going to be, okay, so there's a lot going on. I hear the story. What's happening in your body right now? And they're like, well, I just think, and I'm like, no, that's not, that's think is like a really great way that, you know, you're not in your body. Just settle into your physical cells. What can you feel? Like, can you even get below your throats? Because most people are so up in their head. What do they notice? Can you put your hands on your chest? Can you feel your heart beating, right? Can you notice that your tummy's flipping over and gurgling? Right? Can you even feel that? So sometimes I'll get them to take their shoes off and I'm like, now, nah, can you feel the rug? Can you actually feel that? Because my rug's a bit scratchy. So it really makes them like pay attention because it's like, it's not on purpose. It's not there as some kind of like torture device, right? But but it's a way of just drawing attention. And then if people are used to doing physical activity, right? If they're used to doing exercise, then it's sometimes about combating the story that they have to be working hard. Because I think that that is what our health and fitness industry is just really poor at sometimes is that you have just got to like log your body for it to be worthwhile. And it's some kind of punisher part or some kind of like critical part of us that says, if I don't do this, then blah, 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 then I don't know, then I'm not meeting my goals or then I'm failure in this way or whatever it is. And and that is just as problematic. Those people are not in their bodies either, right? Because what happens if actually they just need to slow it down today? Like I try to go for a walk every morning before I do the school run, which is often like quite the chaotic undertaking because I have a lot of teenagers and they're just slow to like get themselves going and it requires lots of repeated um, <laughs> are we going let's come on we can do this <laughs> and sometimes a little bit stronger than that but I went for a big long walk yesterday and it was hot and I knew that if I was going to go do that again I was going to get halfway up the hill near my house and I was actually going to be really sore in my calves and my ankles and I'm dealing with a little bit of like inflammation I'm perimenopausal like it's all funky times in my body so I'm just like really listening and going actually what would be better is if I do some yoga because I'm going to stretch it stretch out those sore bits it won't hurt so much then I can go for a walk later when my body's had a little bit more time to recover I've had a chance to rehydrate a bit better after yesterday and all that kind of thing and sometimes it's making like a like a cognitive choice on behalf of your body because you know what your body will feel like but that's because I've spent a lot of time like paying attention to what it's telling me for people who have pain stories either pain about experiences or physical pain they've probably done a really really good job of ignoring what their body tells them because if they actually paid attention it would say i'm just not getting out of bed today and so sometimes it's actually not about moving their body too much it's unpacking and getting to the bottom of all of those those things and working on those things first But I guess ultimately, my research is in the field of exercise and nutrition science. My ultimately, I know that moving our bodies is good for us. It's good for us on so many different levels, but that doesn't have to be some crazy workout that leaves us dripping in sweat and completely wrung out. For some people, it is, but not for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And for some people, it might not be flogging yourself at the gym. It might be, yeah, doing yoga, or it might be the opposite. It might, maybe it's not Mm. doing yoga today. Or in this moment, maybe I do need to go for a run and get some energy out. I feel energetic right now. So why not go with that if that's what I'm feeling? Absolutely. For people that are in recovery and when they're having a big craving for alcohol, this is also why it's so important to check in and and, uh, I guess ask yourself, what am I feeling and what do I need? And I think Mm -hmm. if we can couple that with a bit of movement, like whether it's just to go out for a walk around the block or if it is to do a bit of yoga or go smash it out with a bit of a run, mm-hmm. I guess sometimes we feel like we don't trust ourselves to make the right decision. But I think any choice that you make where you're going to move your body is going to be a good one, wouldn't you say, Thea? I would say yes, definitely. And every time you do it, you're just collecting data. I always want to say data because that's my English voice, but I know I'm going with data. I always think about these things as like nothing is bad. You're just collecting information. You're like a science experiment for yourself. So you go out, you do the thing, you come back and you go, well, what did that feel like? How did I pull up? Did it do the thing that I was hoping it would do? Did it not? 
did I learn something completely different? Great pieces of information, right? Like it's not about judging the performance or the act. It's about experiencing it and taking away and then reflecting on it, taking away your data and going, well, what can I learn from that experience? Right? Mm -hmm. I know that usually I have a big walk on a Sunday and then Monday or Tuesday, I'm going to be super sore. So Monday or Tuesday, I've got to do something different. Otherwise, I don't want to get an injury. I don't want to hurt myself, you know, those sorts of things. But the more you do, usually, if you do it in a titrated way, the more you're able to do it. If you, you know, you up the ante every single time, actually, our bodies don't respond brilliantly to that. They'll break down. And that can be just as problematic for our sense of self as maybe the drinking in the first place. <laughs> right? Because then we're just swapping the addiction for something else. So I would say having that as some kind of distraction, having it as some kind of mechanism for bringing us back into our bodies, amazing. But being mindful of what it is doing for us is the important thing. Yes, I think that's a really great question. Am I just using this purely for distraction? Sometimes it's not the greatest option. Yep. Sometimes it is, right? Sometimes, as long as you're conscious of that choice and you know that right now I've got a really big craving and I really need to do something to stop myself from doing the thing that I don't want to do. Well, I'd much rather you go for a run than break that, you, you know, your sobriety in that case, right? Definitely, but you've yeah. chosen that distraction rather than blindly being distracted and then maybe getting a whole little cycle of a new, new, pet, new pet addiction. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you for pointing that out. So yeah, it's, it's about becoming aware of your choice and knowing that, okay, I'm making this choice. This is something that I'm in control of. Mm -hmm. I'm doing to, and mm -hmm. for this purpose. Yeah, great. And then tracking how that feels afterwards. So you haven't drunk yourself for a while now, you were saying it's probably been yeah. since last year. Tell me how that, what's your relationship been like with alcohol, even going back into your childhood, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, of course. So I came from a household where alcohol was very free flowing. My mum is an alcoholic. I don't know whether she would identify as one, but she, uh, like I remember when I was about 16, I went to see my family GP. I can't even remember now why I went to see her, but she treated all of us. And I can't imagine someone doing this now, but she said to me uh, in the conversation, she said, you know, your mum's an alcoholic, don't you? What? And I said, oh. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. I said, oh, I'm so glad you said that because I thought she was, but I didn't know whether that was okay to kind of use that. And she's like, absolutely. Would you like to talk to someone about that? And I was like, oh. yes, yes, I would. And that was kind of my first experience of, of counselling or therapy oh, wow. um, was back oh. then when I was 16. What was that experience like for you to get counselling? And I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, I don't know how much I remember of it. I remember the room. I can remember where it was because it was upstairs in the doctor's surgery. So obviously back then, this is back in the UK, they obviously had some funding agreement that they had. And I remember I had six sessions. And I remember the primary focus was around my mum and her drinking and the impact it had on me. So I grew up, I grew up in the Caribbean, lived there till with my family till I was 10. And then we all moved back to the UK, at which point I went straight to boarding school in England. So from the ages of 10 to 16, I was at boarding school away from home. Yeah. And so I had this very interesting kind of relationship with my family. I moved back home for the last two years of my education, which was an interesting choice. But that's when all of this stuff started coming up because although there had been absolute chaos through the weekends that I was at home and in the holidays with my mom and her drinking, it hadn't been in my face so much because I could escape to boarding school it wasn't every day so then I really I really needed to talk to somebody about how difficult this transition was for me and like on and off I've been in therapy ever since sometimes there's been big big gaps of time when I haven't been in therapy in that time and then I probably for the last since I've been working in in mental health I've been actively in therapy the whole time because I think it's really important for my integrity to be reminded what it's like to sit on the other side of the room mm. but also because you know my clients bring stuff up in me all the time and that's that's where I have to do that work so I was encouraged to drink at the dinner table like it was like not in a like being forced to but it was like you you're welcome to have 
you know, wine or if there's anything else you'd like, you're really welcome to have it. Um, it was very normalized. I definitely had episodes of getting completely drunk when I was still at boarding school. And then when I was uh, out and, and doing my last two years of, of education. And then I can't remember the first time I decided I wasn't going to drink at all, but it was in my 20s. I just was sober for a period of time. And a lot of it was, I don't want to be like my mum. That was one of my big stories. Mm. And the other was, I don't like not being in control. Like that feeling of being very drunk and not having control of everything, like not being able to remember what happened or the next day, that whole shame story of not being like saying dumb stuff or regretting mm. actions mm. or that stuff. I just, so that was the first time where I didn't drink. I then, I don't know why I would have started again, but I would have done at some point. And then def I didn't drink at all when I had the child when I was pregnant and had children. And that was probably for a full, I don't know, because I had a two year age gap. I don't think I drank in between the two of them. So I probably went a good four or five years then without drinking. And then coming over here, I guess it was just a way of like connecting to people. Although having said that, it took me quite a long time to find wine that I quite liked the taste of when I came over. So I don't think I drank much to start with. And then I think just gradually it increased over time while I was here. And then COVID was just, just messy for it. And I'm sure I'm not the only person to, to kind of say that. But for me, I then noticed that I was creating rules around alcohol. So we wouldn't drink Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. Oh no, we would drink then, but then wouldn't drink Monday through. And then it was just like, well, hang on, if I'm creating rules around this, what does that really mean? Never to excess. It would be like maybe one or two glasses of wine a night. And then, and then I was just like, this actually is gross. I just, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'd been sitting with the idea for maybe six months. Oh no. And then in amongst all of that, I broke my wrist, had to go on to some hardcore medications. So I didn't drink again for maybe eight months while I was on those. But then started drinking again after and yeah that's when i made the decision actually i don't need to keep yo-yoing back and forth again part of that whole perimenopausal thing how many things can i positively change that i am i am able to control right like it seems silly that i don't want to you know one of my stories was i don't like not being in control and yet there's so many parts of being perimenopausal you can't control <laughs> your hormones are going to do what they're going to do and that experience has to happen until you become menopausal but then these things that I could control, I was choosing not to, which seemed a bit counterintuitive to me. Mm -hmm. So that's when I, I just decided, to, I feel like it was sometime like March, April last year. I was just like, nah, I'm not doing this anymore. Amazing. Yeah, well done. That's so great to make that choice and that one positive step of something that you can control, 100%. Absolutely. Can I ask you, and it's okay if you don't want to share, but what sort of impact do you think in hindsight mum's drinking had on you? Oh, that's a massive question. And I'm really mindful that there might be people out there that are mums and dads. And I, what I don't want them to hear is like a whole big, I'm going to feel guilty. You probably feel guilty anyway, because we already do. So I think in my experience as a child, as opposed to the lens that I put on it as an adult, it was chaotic. It was really, really chaotic. There has always been an enormous barrier between me and my mum. And I'd like to think it's just the alcohol. It's probably not. The alcohol is just a symptom of the thing. I'm quite sure that she, I'm her first child. She was very career oriented. I, there's a whole stuff. That's her story kind of thing. Mm. Alcohol just happened to be the thing that she chose to manage her stuff. It felt very unsafe, emotionally unsafe, because, you know, that whole treading on eggshells, not knowing what you're going to get anticipating the outcome. Mum was always that kind of person that would, if it went well, it could all be fine, but it would take one, one wrong move by any of us, usually me or my dad, and the whole thing would go south and mm. it would go south in a massive way. And then there would be really sharp, unkind words and then silence. And there would be like punishing silence for days. Again, adult me, reflect, therapist me, especially reflecting on that. That was her own shame stuff. That was her own thing. But the effect was very disconnecting. 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. One thing that we were just talking about before is that for people that are listening that have been an addict or are currently an addict and they've heard that and it's hit their stuff, can we talk to that? Because I think it's really important. I know for myself with my daughter, my oldest daughter, I I think there's two things you said that I want to touch on. One thing that my daughter did see some terrible behaviour and she remembers some things and I think, oh my God. And luckily, yes, I stopped before she got too much older. And then my younger one, Aria, her conscious memory doesn't remember any of it. So that's great. I think so anyway, at this point. But what can we say to people who are in that place of, oh my God, and that real self-judgment about what they might have put their kids through with their addiction. This is really important, I Mm -hmm. I really do think, because it it comes up a lot when I'm working with people. And that guilt and shame that Mm. we then carry into our own healing is a big hurdle, right, because it's like that critical part of us says it's not okay for you to heal because you've done all of this damage or whatever that story is that you have. I always say to my clients when I sit with them in session, when I talk about parents and their experience of the child in that dynamic was or was likely to have been, if we don't have memory of it, it's always done without judgment of the parent because I truly believe, and I can say this hand on heart without any sense of, like I've just got goosebumps. You know, we were talking about being connected to our body. I've just had goosebumps all down my arms. Mm. Without any, any tension in my body whatsoever, I can say I don't, hold any judgment or negative kind of criticism of what I experienced as a result of what my mum's drinking was. That's Mm. what my journey of therapy has kind of really helped me understand is that truly my mum was doing the best that she could with what she had at the time in a very normalized drinking world. And yes, there was damage caused and disconnection and all of those things, but I think about what my child, my children have been through. So they haven't been exposed to me drinking like that, but they've been exposed to divorce and they've been exposed to a a dead stepdad. That sounds so blunt, but like a stepdad who died. Both of those are equally potentially damaging if we think about adverse childhood experiences as living with an alcoholic mother, right? And going to boarding school. We just make the choices that we can to get by and... I, I truly believe that every parent is really doing the best that they can with what they have. And right at that point, that's what my mum had. In my experience of parenting my children, that's what I had. And it's a very kind of like 1980s, 90s lens of therapy, you know, when we're thinking about like Ricky Lake and Gary Springer, bring the parent out and let's just have it out. It's not, it, it's not about that. I've never confronted my mum about like in adulthood. When I was a teenager, I was like... I maybe tried it twice. It was always, it had very bad consequences. Actually, it was with a desire to get her to change, but that was, you know, I recognized very quickly that that was not appropriate nor my job, right? But my journey out the other side of it has been that it isn't that she was bad. She made some crappy choices, but she made the choices that she really needed to to deal with her own stuff. And one of the hardest things I think to, to get to is that space of, well, what does it mean about me that she didn't choose differently, right? Mm. It doesn't actually mean anything about me. It means everything about her. And it's when we can work through that piece that we don't need to carry, I guess, that guilt about how our children may or may not respond to those experiences. And, you know, yeah, sure, make sure that they have access to the support when they need it so that they can talk it through and they can explain what it was like for them and and have support working through that for themselves because everyone will have their own versions of that story. I always end up having enormous compassion for the parents (laughs) when I'm working with clients, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And often understanding that whole thing, our parents did the best that they could. I'm a child of an addict as well. And I try to, especially now, now that I've done a lot of work on myself, to just keep on working on myself and how I am in relation to that addiction and the behaviours, because I can't change that person. But nor do I want my mum to berate herself for the rest of her life about her addiction, because it's not her fault. It's a coping mechanism. What I would love to see is is change, positive change, if that's possible. So I think if parents have, perhaps they're in recovery and they're giving themselves a hard time, I think, would you agree, Thea, that 
what children of addicts want to see is change and their parents getting better and doing better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like if you are the parent in recovery, first of all, like well done and amazing. My mum mm. still drinks and coming to a space of acceptance that that's her path and the choice that she's made has probably been the hardest bit that you can't change it and make it better, especially as a therapist, right? It's like so many times I want to jump in and go, okay. But what I can do is when I go over there is encourage her to go for a walk, right? Like I don't go anywhere near the addicted part of her because that's the stuff that she would need to make a choice about for herself. For the people that are listening that have made that choice, like just keep doing you, like do your path, do the things that are making you well for you. And the, honestly, you are healing so much just by doing that as in your child's experience, right? If you've got children, that is their healing. It's never, ever too late. Like I have clients who have gone through awfulness and, and as a result, their, their trauma has been passed down to their children. They're like, oh my gosh, but what have I done? To and these are may or may not be addicts, right? And it's like, but you being here today right now is helping their story right now, just doing this. They may know nothing about it. They may not even know that you're in therapy. It doesn't matter, but you, you doing this changes that dynamic for them Ooh. So keep doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That just gave me yeah. goosebumps too. Yeah. hundred percent. That's very powerful. Yeah. Again, for people listening, just that you doing the work or you getting help or you being in recovery is already changing that story and changing the lives of people around you yeah 100 percent. yeah that's beautiful Thea thank you so much for sharing that that's amazing the other thing I wanted to ask about was just that kind of processing of emotions so because you are mm -hmm. such a great psychotherapist and you are so body-based and obviously we did the Gabor training so it's very much based <laughs> around that somatic stuff as well mm -hmm. talk to mm -hmm. me a little bit about that kind of cycle of emotions and when people get really stuck in like a way of thinking or they've felt overwhelmed and it's all too much and they're on the couch and they feel like they've got the eternity thinking this is never going to end what would you say for those people if you're working with those people that just feel like that they're freaking out a bit this is never going to end I guess it would depend a little bit on where we're at sometimes I might have a conversation with them about the weather in Melbourne <laughs> as a great illustration right because it's oh, never right. it never stays right mm. like we we had a week of like wall-to-wall -wall sunshine last week right and and we're all sitting here going, ha but it's never going to stay like that forever, right? But by the same token, if we can hold that idea with our emotions, they do come and go. It feels like sometimes that that depression is never going to lift. It feels like that overwhelm is never going to going to pass. But we don't know what the future will bring. But likely, likely it's going to change, right? In the same way as we can't guarantee that we get tomorrow, but likely we will. Based on our experiences so far, we're going to get tomorrow. We might not get 10 years, but we're probably going to get tomorrow, right? Mm. And that emotion probably is going to move at some point. When it gets tricky is when we get fixated on the idea that it's not going to. And then what that does is it's like, okay, I'm just going to double down. And that feeling's going, okay, well, I've just made space. I'm just going to hang around some more. Or if we get in that panicky state of like, oh my gosh, it's never going to go away. It's never going to go away. And what our brain is designed to like make us just focus on these bad things is that whole negativity bias that we have, which evolutionarily has served us brilliantly, but doesn't really help us in the here and now. Mm -hmm. So I would then go, well, let's just take a second. Let's just take a second and invite that uncomfortable emotion in instead of trying to push it away. It's like, it's banging on the door, like a Jehovah's witness or something, right? Like, you know, and we're just like, Oh my gosh. Or like, if it's me, it's like, I don't really do Halloween. So when the kids come knocking on Halloween, I'm hiding, I'm like ignoring the door doorbell. So it's like, I envisage kids knocking my emotions. Those uncomfortable emotions are like the kids knocking on trick or treat night. What if I just opened the door and invited them in, gave them some candy, come and get comfy, pull up a chair, hang around. And, and as soon as you make space for those emotions, you acknowledge that they're there. They might settle in for a bit. They might have an extra cup of tea. They might want a slice of cake, but likely they'll bugger off real quick. Right. Mm. Likely once they've been acknowledged, they're like, thanks. My work here is done. You acknowledged me. I'm off. Cause I have more houses to knock on. Right. I've got more <laughs> sweets to get up the street. <laughs> okay. They do pass. And if we can trust, like they really do. Right? Like if we think about our life so far, they come and go like the Melbourne weather and our sense of self is the sun that exists behind the clouds. 
right? Mm. That true sense of who we are, that sun is still up in the sky or the moon, depending on which time of day it is, right? It's always there, even though we can't necessarily get access to it because you've been in Melbourne for a while and the clouds have definitely settled in for a bit, right? They will pass, the sun will shine again and our sense of true self and calm will come, come through. Beautiful. Yes. It's so good to remember that, isn't it? That it will come. And I so agree. Just let it in, invite it in, sit down, have a cup of tea with it, and it will probably just get bored and bugger off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'll be icky for a while, but you know what? Yeah. You've done icky before. Like you've that you are well versed in. If you've been navigating any kind of addiction for any length of time, you're a pro at that. So that's a piece of cake for you. Absolutely. 100%. I've just had a coaching client just been going through some huge stuff at the moment. Lots like a few deaths in the family happen, a big shift and lots of changes. And she was just feeling super, super overwhelmed. And so we just, I had a quick chat on the phone just about that and just sort of talking about that, remembering it will pass, like remembering that it's okay to sit with the feelings and it's really normal to feel the feelings of sadness that were there and grief. And so just saying it would be kind of weird if you didn't feel a bit of sadness and grief totally. right now, right, and overwhelm. and Like a heartbreak, right? It's exactly right. the same. It, exactly. You know, when you're halfway through the second tub of ice cream, you're like, this is, I'm never going to not feel this awful feeling. And then yeah. actually when you look back and you go, oh, yeah, no, it did pass. Yeah, <laughs> it really well, it did. Passed. But it's also okay to feel it. Yeah. Like sometimes we get a bit of a shock when, especially if we're doing really well and then something happens or something or someone happens and we get knocked on our ass again and we're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. What the hell? No, this isn't right. But actually it's okay. Anyway, life, so, really. yeah. Yeah. so I chatted to her about perhaps picking up some therapy or doing some coaching or something like that to if she needs it, if it's getting too much. But also just said, just trust in your body, trust in the process over the weekend, do a bit of journaling, see if, you, if your body wants to move a bit. Same thing like we are talking about earlier and let me know how you feel. Anyway, I checked in with her earlier before. And she said, you know what, it is passing. It's definitely nowhere near as bad as it was. I managed to get myself to a yoga class. I didn't get into the early morning ones, but I got into an afternoon one. And, yeah, and she also wrote down, this is also great just for people listening, she wrote down all the things that were stressing her that were really feeling big and just got mm -hmm. it out in a journal. And she said just mm -hmm. writing that out made a really big difference too. So absolutely, the reason I'm sharing this is and trusting in yourself, trusting the process, trusting your own emotions to do those things rather than thinking, fuck, this is too much. I've got to drink my way through this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I won't be okay unless I can unplug from it. And actually, we all have that innate capacity to get through those things. They're awful and they feel like tidal waves, right? They do come like waves, right? Likely that person that you were talking about, likely there'll be another ripple at some point, right? But these things that they're going to practice now, are they going to be the things that they fall back on later? And their vital kind of strategies often have clients who are like, just tell me the strategies. What do I need to do? And I'm like, okay, well, it's not really how we work, but yes, we can do some of the things on the side that we've still got to do some, some different, right? We've got to do differently. We've got to put some scaffolding as I often mm -hmm. refer to it in place, mm -hmm. but you've got this. Yeah. 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 It's in fact, the evidence that you're here right now, you know, the people listening and wherever they're at in their recovery journey says that they've got this right. Cause they've done so far incredibly well. Like do not judge those parts that have fallen off the bandwagon or done things that we're all ashamed of. Like we all, that is what it is to be a human. There is no perfect way to navigate this life. We are all just muddling through the best that we can. You've got this far. You will get this. You've got this so far. You've got that muscle behind you. Just keep going. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. So that's such beautiful advice and those beautiful words. Thank you for sharing those. The other thing, Thea, as well is, as you said earlier, you're in therapy. I'm also in therapy. I see my therapist once a month and I up it if there's some stuff going on. And I think, like you say, it's important to also to be able to take accountability for what's going on for us if we're being triggered within our work and also to, to be on the other side of it. Talk to me, even if you're not in a therapy type role, but just everyday people, like I just think everyone, everyone should be in therapy in fact I was saying to my my good friend the other day I said I don't think I could be friends with anyone unless they're in therapy <laughs> <laughs> I think that's my intake form for friendships are you in therapy? yeah 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 are you in therapy 
have you ever done it, I think the red flag is have you ever done therapy and the answer is no right like that's like why not <laughs> yeah, yeah see ya um, I'll call you yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 here's a card of some people I'm biased right like hands down I believe it's really really important I think it's we're not very good at self-reflection as a generally like our brain is great at selling us a great story and we hide from shame that's that's what two-year-olds do when they suddenly realize the process of doing a poo in their nappy they'll go hide behind the couch or behind the curtain right that's that first kind of like oh this is not good I must hide myself right that is the same thing that we are doing if we're not we're not facing the stuff and we need people objective people to ask us the hard questions and to challenge us and some of my therapists I give them such a hard time bless them and not on purpose but because I'm like oh I know this game <laughs> I know that you know I know that I can only show one part of me and I can answer in a particular way that and that doesn't serve like that doesn't actually help me get any further in the process so I sit with the discomfort and I go well I don't like this very much I actually say that out loud I don't like that question very much and my current therapist is like yep yeah, but you're gonna you're gonna give it a red hot crack right Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yep, I will. I just think it, we've all had stuff. I, my partner says to me, yeah, but you think everyone's had trauma. And I'm like, well, just quietly they have, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> my that's, eyebrows are, mm -hmm. that is a very, it, yeah, that's like my kind of very, again, biased lens of that doesn't necessarily mean that they are traumatized, but they have experienced some form of trauma that has affected how they show up in the world. And the people that are aware of that and are doing, I hate the phrase, but doing the work, sitting with that and working through that, and that can take various forms. Like I believe that therapy can look like listening to podcasts genuinely. Like I give podcasts out to people all the time to listen to because I'm like, that for some people is the thing that lands. I have, can't, have lost track of the amount of times that people will come to me and go, oh, so I listened to this podcast. And I'm like, oh yeah, that one that I sent you back however many weeks ago. Um, and this thing that they said, it just was like, and I'm like, uh huh. So that thing that we've been talking about for maybe six months, it's finally landed. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You heard it and it's landed and that's exactly its purpose. Therapy can come in, in a bunch of different shapes and sizes. I recognize that currently in Australia, it's financially really problematic and our mm. systems are not brilliant at supporting people in that way. It's a privilege that I afford to do my own therapy and I recognize that in the clients that that's a financial commitment that a lot of them really struggle to make but they do it because it's necessary for them that's an individual experience but I think it's just it's just how we get to be more whole yeah and I think financially as well even if you're not seeing them all the time like you might not be able to see them once a week yeah and the mental health plan's great like going to yep. a doctor and getting on the mental health plan is also awesome as just well. yeah I would I would say absolutely yes know that for people that maybe don't have clinical diagnoses and are interested in not subscribing to that it's a tricky one because mm. to to get a mental health care plan means that you have to be diagnosed with something and that might not be I'm really mindful of people being informed consumers of healthcare particularly mental health care. So just, yeah, there are gazillions of counsellors out there that are a lot cheaper than seeing psychologists that you do not have to have a mental health care plan to access. And that can be a much less clinical experience for people. For some people, that's really vital and really necessary and a no-brainer and all of the things. Mm. But those 10 sessions, that's a year on a monthly plan-ish. Yes, if you see them monthly, that will get you almost through a Is year. Six? Um, yeah. It's thanks six and then you can get out. another four. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. I know that people have run into problems with job interviews, I think, or different. I don't know how that gets accessed, but that's a good point. But also I found that, so I see a psychologist, like it's quite expensive. If you're on the mental health plan, mm. it, it comes down to about $130 yep. for people, that, yep. which is roughly about the same price sometimes as counsellors. Absolutely. That's exactly so what I was going to say. Is yeah, balance yes. out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you've got long-term, if you anticipate that you need long-term support, then that mental health care plan psychologist route might not be the way for you because once you've done, well, monthly probably isn't going to be enough if you've got an acute situation going on. Mm. And so then you're going to run out halfway through the year for argument's sake, and then your costs go up massively. And what we find is that a lot of people drop off at that point because they can't afford to spend 240 or more on their 
private psychiatr- uh, psychologist fees. So counselling might be a way of like, and, and I have lots of clients that see us as counsellors and psychotherapists, and we work with psychologists and even psychiatrists to kind of bridge that gap. So find people that resonate with you and find something that holistically works for you. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Thank you so much for that. Okay. So Thea, thank you so much. Thea Baker from Thea Baker Wellness in Camberwell. It was lovely chatting with you. I really wish you luck with this PhD, which is amazing. And you're also looking for people probably over the next couple of years to take part in studies. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to be doing two interventions that will require um, women who have experienced intimate partner violence. So if you're in Melbourne, probably it's going to require in-person activity later on, maybe later this year. And then next year, if that's something that you'd be interested in, please stay in touch with me. I'll be making it really obvious when I'm looking for participants. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. And if people want to connect with you on Instagram, what's the Instagram handle? It's Thea Baker Wellbeing on Instagram and on Facebook, but mostly I'm all over the the gram rather than Facebook these days. And then the website's theabaker.com.au. Great, which I'll put links to all those things in the show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thea. I know you're super busy. I really appreciate your time and your beautiful insights today. My pleasure. It was a joy. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Thea. Bye. Bye. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.